So, good evening, everyone. I know that many of you have had a very intense day today. Um, and I know that uh, meta retreats can be difficult. Any retreat can be difficult, but I think this retreat in particular can just bring up a lot very quickly. And so... I was just touched by the meetings I had today and by stories I was hearing and um, yeah, I just feel very supportive of everyone and feel a lot of inspiration uh, just as we move along here on our way together. Also understand that it's a process that we all go through. The teachers are on retreat as well, you know. We have our own little waves that come and go. (laughs) It's beautiful. So tonight I wanted to talk about metta. But I also wanted to talk about metta and the body and how this practice affects our body and how we can transform our views about the body, how we live in our bodies, and all of the different experiences that we can have with the body and healing and all these different things through some of these practices that we're doing. So it's kind of a broad exploration of a few different things and I'll just share with you in the hopes that this can be supportive for you um, and as you move about your, your days here. And hopefully you can use some of this information and it will fuel your practice a bit. So there's this quote by uh, that Jack, not by Jack, but I feel like Jack reads it all the time. It's by Eduardo Galeano. And he writes, The church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising says the body is a business. The body says I am a fiesta. (laughs) Are you all having fiestas today in your body? (laughs) Some people wonder, I don't know. (laughs) But I like that, like the body has its own agenda, it has its own rhythm, it has its own uh, beingness. And I'm making these discoveries for myself all the time, but particularly in the last years, I've had a lot of my own trauma healed in my body. There's a way that I inhabit it differently than learning how to move my body, to feel my body, to live in my body, to experience everything within my body. And um, there's a shift in our community around this to more embodied practices, to how do we explore this together as a community and what's the aspect of metta? How does metta play into this? So in spiritual communities, just like what the funny thing about, you know, in this little poem where the church says the body is a sin, a lot of us have picked up that a lot. You know, rather, you know, we grew, how we grew up, it's in, our, it's in the culture, like, 
You know, we, we sort of want to get out of our body, sort of the, you know, a lot of people when they come to meditation, they're going, you know, get me out of here, right? That's the idea. I want, I'm here now stuck, trapped in this experience, but I want to get out, right? Give me the light, give me the, some other realm, right? And people really long for that. And sometimes when we teach, no, mindfulness is about coming right here, right now. They're sort of like, really? Oh, I don't, I don't know about that. You know, this is kind of an initial discouragement, right? You know, that can come. So, I was kind of like that too. It's like, oh, I'd read a lot of books on yogis and all kinds of Hindu stories and magic and. You know, I just knew that was going to happen at any moment, not where I was just sitting feeling knee pain and self-hatred and self-consciousness for hours. I thought, this, no one wrote that down, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of a part of what we have to experience here. And so I want to just, you know, as we touch into working with the body, there's so much confusion about it. I, I didn't when I when I was looking for text and information about the body, there was really a classical text in uh, Theravadan Buddhism, the Satipatthana Sutra, where it lays out very clearly the four foundations of mindfulness, basically all the practices that we offer here. Um, and the first one was about the body, right? How to live in the body, feel the body, the body in different postures, how we learn to pay attention to the body. Um, and it's a brilliant sutta because it's at the beginning the Buddha says this is the path to freedom this is the complete path and then it lays out the other aspects of mindfulness mindfulness of the Dharma mindfulness of emotions mindfulness of feeling tones it's a whole map in itself and it's the core of what is taught here the mindfulness retreats it's really the foundation but what else was there about the body? You know, there was so much conflicting information. It was sort of like if you have a woman's body, it's kind of like, uh-oh, right? Uh, it's kind of a, a, a lot of information as if, you know, we're sort of still, in the text kind of viewed maybe as some kind of temptress or something, you know, the the Eve archetype, you know. Or, and so it was confusing. It's like, oh, can I have this body and get awakened? I don't know, I don't see myself in any of these things. And, and, and then I'll just all this shame. And then, and then, you know, in our culture, we're obsessed with bodies, but for kind of all the wrong reasons, right? So we start to view our whole identity in the amount of suffering on retreat that when in my early days and as I practiced that I would have around how my body looked, right? From everything from, it's too dark, it's too this, it's too you know, whatever, right? It never, we never really can fit some kind of ideal. So then on itself, the body becomes this huge source of suffering. And we only, we get caught in that one level only. Um, I think the Buddha also had his own dilemmas with working with the body. I think he came into some kind of right relationship over his own process of purification. There's a statue that you will never probably see because it's way up where the staff live. There's a giant Buddha where he's starving to death. And you can see his ribs. And 
uh, is very gaunt, it looks sick, you know, and it's a, it's a statue that is uh, in different parts of the world, you can, you can see the statue, and it represents the Buddha's period of intense renunciation when he was practicing. And, you know, I think the Buddha, he went from this palace to a spiritual practitioner all at once. He went from living in a palace to living on the earth as a beggar, right? Just like that, he changed his life. And I think what he did was what is kind of common where we think we need to kind of get rid of the body in some way, right? There was this idea, he, he tried to break the body. So he ate very little. He did all the aesthetic practices of the time. You know, anything that was offered as a path to awakening, these are very common, uh, these were very common practices. Still, some of them are practiced today. The Jain religion is sort of inspiring to me. I couldn't imagine living naked on the earth day after day, but they still practice like this. You know, they still show up and they're, they're whole groups of people and eat very little, do very, you know, it's like, wow, it's still a living lineage. Um, but the Buddha took it, I think, a step further. He did all these practices and for five years he tried to sort of break the body. This is my view of his, ex- his experiment that he was trying to find truth. So they say that he, one day he stood up and then collapsed. He needed to go to the bathroom and then he stood and he fell and he thought, this isn't the way, right? And I was like, what am I doing, you know? I don't even have any strength. I, have, I can't even pay attention. Right, and what have I been doing all these years living on a grain of rice a day? Right, is this, I don't know, this doesn't seem wise. And they said that in that reflection that he remembered a time when he was very young, a child, and he was happy in his father's garden. And he was just sitting in in an apple orchard or something like that. And he just very naturally, with a lot of peace, fell into a very deep state of samadhi concentration and he as he reflected he thought no that's the way like why am I struggling I'm fighting I'm I don't I'm not taking care of this body and so then they say that he went and took a bath and then this beautiful um, I guess you could say maiden even though that's kind of an old-fashioned word a sort of a, a practitioner a devotee a woman named Sujata a young girl was on her way with this huge bowl of rice that she had been, was going to offer at a temple and she saw him and immediately offered it and he took his first meal. So also, also I like to look at that as the balance of the feminine. It was a woman who was like, eat, take care of your body, some kind of like harmonizing of these parts. Like, yeah, I can't, I have to take care of this too. We, this actually is a vehicle that goes with me here you know, on some level, on the archetypal level. So the Buddha ate. He uh, found the middle path there. He declared the middle path between this sort of overindulgent life in a palace and then sort of this incredible renunciation where one tortures the body. You know, it's like, well, both of these don't work. You know, if you want to live a spiritual life, it's somewhere in the middle. Right, we find this middle path. So we know that there's confusion around 
around this? How do we live in our bodies? How do we feel free in our bodies? How do we wake up in, in the midst of this life, in, the, in this time, in 2013, you know, in these, in these bodies? What's the effect of metta? So one of the things that we can say without a doubt is in the last 20 years there's been an enormous amount of research on the mind-body connection, right? If you've been reading anything in psychology or anything, we know that the mind affects the body, right? We know that certain thoughts, certain images, they have a huge effect on the body. There's tremendous healing potential and thousands of stories about how these two play together, right, in healing processes. So Herbert Benson, who's um, the MD, and he's the director at the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine, he works at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he authored a book that I thought was interesting called Relaxation Revolution, right? So here he is in this general hospital, huge hospital in Boston, right, all kinds of people. So his research that he he studied was meditation, yoga, tai chi, deep breathing and visualization. And he was just a doctor, just interested in, you know, looking at how people heal sicknesses. So he started to, um, he's one of the first people who kind of identified the stress hormone cortisol, right? And now they've really identified this as a huge source of disease, right? High levels of cortisol cortisol in the body create heart disease, right? Especially heart disease. So he was interested in that. So he saw that all these practices actually uh, eased blood pressure, digestion. He saw people who started to do these practices, their immune systems uh, went way up, cortisol levels went way down. So he got interested and he started studying this more and more. So I think we could all kind of see that for ourselves. We could kind of say, yeah, you know, people, when we're filled with anger, it's a certain toxicity that we feel. Have you noticed this? And the mind turns really dark. We can almost feel like we're going to vomit or there's some, when we're really noticing, we feel sick, right? We're like, we're taken over by something. When we're filled with metta, when the metta is really flowing, even if you just felt it for one moment today, there's a certain energy, a lightness, a, a being, right? We feel radiant. We feel energized often. I always say love. It's a very energizing emotion, right? When people have no energy, I always say, do metta, right? And then the mind gets bright and suddenly we're like, yeah, we walk outside, you know, we feel like we can conquer the world, you know, when we have a lot of loving and compassion, So the other night, Anushka brought up Deepama, and I was also a big fan of Deepama, again, this woman from Calcutta who had this really interesting life. Um, One of the stories that I was, two stories I want to tell from uh, her book that was written by some students, the book called Knee Deep in Grace. Uh, I think there's copies maybe in the bookstore if they haven't sold out of them. But Deepama, before she went to the meditation center, now she was reported to have had tremendous capacity in her mind, both like she went through the whole stages of insight, and I think in a matter of 10 days, right? It was this huge opening, right? 
But Deepama had been in bed for five years before she went to the meditation center, really stricken with grief and was near death, was sick, right? Was so uh, saddened by the loss of her child and her husband, particularly her husband. Um, They were very, very close. It said, Joseph told me a story. He said, Deepama, Joseph Goldstein, really adored Deepama, so did Jack, but particularly Joseph has spent a lot of time with her, going to Calcutta regularly to visit. He said Deepama crawls up the stairs into the meditation center, crawling because she was so sick, right? She couldn't even walk. She was so debilitated by years of grief, by just illnesses in the body, the suffering of sorrow. And... um, she crawled into the meditation center. And then within a period of time, her body became completely healed. So there's all kinds of stories about her. Another story, uh, her meta was obviously kind of legendary. Jack uh, once told the story, Jack Cordfield told the story, he went, he was having a very hard time, he was in India, and he thought, I need to go see Deepama. So he went to go see her and he said, will you give me a blessing? And then she like stroked his head and hugged him and she put a light around him. And he said for two days he had this bliss smile plastered all the way back to his face, you know, all the way back to the United States. He was flying in airports and he didn't even notice. It was just like this transmission, right, of, of, of her metta and her big heartedness. So uh, Deepama is quite inspiring because she would just seem like an ordinary woman. And was teaching many people. So Deepama Asil said a lot about health and well-being, and she felt that the practice of meditation had a huge beneficial effect on one's health overall. She felt like it could help heal different things. Now, we can't say that it can heal everything because we do have the laws of karma. You know, things are as they are. But the chances of us working with whatever conditions we have with a loving heart, the chances of improvement, we could say, are higher. I think we could all agree to that. Science would point us in that direction. Also, you know, neuroscientists and Buddhists are having a love affair right now, if you haven't noticed. Just when I was last week down... At the Monday night class, there was Cliff Soren again. He leads the Shamatha Project over at UC Davis. They do a lot of research here, right, on the yogis in the one month. And he was recruiting more people. If you've ever sat, you know, we want to take your vitals and come see us and then track you. And, you know, they really want to study the brain. And there's all kinds of of um, experiments, I guess you could say, happening on many levels his Holiness, the Dalai Lama, is particularly excited, and he started, obviously, with some other neuroscientists, the Mind Life Institute, and they study and, and look at things around meditation, particularly compassion and metta on the brain. They're very interested in this, right? So interested that His Holiness set up the altruism school out of Stanford, right? Basically, he's studying goodness, right? Studying love, studying compassion, right? This is a huge area. So he feels quite happy people are researching this. Very, He's like, very good. 
Very good, right? Because what happens is people are skeptical. Right? They're like, do meta, it's so cheesy, that can't be the way, right? But I don't know if there's any other answers here. You know, I don't know. So, uh, love and compassion on the brain. One of my teachers, uh, I have many, but one of my Tibetan teachers is named Minjur Rinpoche. Minjur has been on retreat for the last few years, so I've, I've missed him a lot. I'm not sure when he's coming off retreat. Um, he was one of the first Tibetan uh, early wave, you could say, that was brought to MIT. He had done his first three-year retreat when he was 13. Uh, and his father was a great yogi, was just, you know, this incredible yogi known for, you know, his father had done 20 years in retreat. Uh, so he sort of came from this lineage, you know, <laughs> of yogis. So they, so some researchers came to the monastery where he was, and he had done a couple of three-year retreats, and he was about 19. Uh, and they said, we want to study someone who's done a lot of compassion. Who do you recommend? And they all said, Minger, get Minger. So they took him back to the United States, you know, from this little Nepalese uh, hermitage. And um, there was a cover of Time magazine maybe 10 years ago, and he's all wired up, you know, and there's like gadgets, and he's like sitting. He's a little bit kind of kooky acting, a little like, I guess kooky is a good word, like, uh, funny, you know what? He's uh, he's not taking money things seriously. Let's just say that. Uh, so, you know, that's it was his introduction to working with Westerners was through the MIT <laughs> program, and he was like, okay, you know, having grown up in these kind of cultures where compassion and these qualities of bodhicitta, which means uh, for the benefit of all beings, you know, you practice for the welfare of others, is really deeply ingrained. Um, so, the last thing I'll say, and then I, I want to move on, is that one of the scientists, uh, a group of them gathered at, with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, and they had just built this new gadget that was supposed to track, you know, brain flow or activity. And so they were, they brought out a, a, a sort of a, hmm, what do you say, somebody who modeled it, right, for all these monks. So Dalai Lama was there, and then there was a hundred monks, some of the most uh, accomplished yogis were there, you could say, uh, who are interested in the work. Uh, so they came out, and then all the neuroscientists are there in the panel, and the whole group of monks started cracking up laughing. And the, the neuroscientists are like, oh, it's so funny, you know, why? We've just spent a million dollars on, I know it looks funny, it's just like gadget, you know, on the head. And, and all of them said, because the mind is here. <laughs> it's not here. Right? The mind, heart and mind to them are the same. So that's kind of why I want to talk about the body, because the heart is here, it's in our body. This is an embodied practice, this is an intuitive practice, right? To, to you know, the name of this retreat is called the heart of love, right? It's, it's like radiating from here. You know, we feel the warmth in our body when our heart is touched, right? So I want to just talk about that a bit more. One of the things I've discovered about 
my body and other people's bodies is that we are incredibly sensitive. Highly sensitive. Way, way more than we would know, ever know. We are so, so sensitive. So we are these organic organisms, right? And it just, and as you just feel into the body, it's kind of magical in its own way. I cut my finger really badly at my house the other day. I thought I would need stitches initially and then it started to heal. And now I look at it, it's almost gone. It's like left on its own. This magical form heals itself. It's quite impressive, isn't it? Right? It, it's generative and it feels. It's awake. Our body is awake even when we're not. It's taking in information from every single, every outlet. When we're on retreat, our bodies even become more sensitive. There's a heightened sensitivity. Have you started to notice this yet? Sounds, smells, taste. So this body comes with these sense doors. So basically all day, what we're doing is we're hearing things, seeing, tasting, retouching, smelling, right? And there's this play of these constant stimuli coming in. Sometimes it can feel like we're being bombarded, right? Because we're constantly exposed to stimuli. We're constantly being exposed to experience. Right? We're hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, smelling. The sixth one is cognizing. So then we have to interact with the mind or. Right? So whatever's coming through the mind, we're responding continuously. So there's this outer, and then there's this continual inner response. Right? And we're very sensitive to all these, these flows of stimulation. And here's, I think, the shocking thing about it is we can't turn it off. We, I know people often want to, it's like, can I, how do I shut it all down? Right? Something, like, is there a mechanism, right? But what we're asked to live an awake life is to stay awake in the midst of all of this, right? How do we find refuge with such constant things of changing nature of hearing and seeing and touching and tasting and smelling and we can get tired of the same thing and then the mind's reacting to everything that it sees, right? It creates stories based on what's coming in. Is this good? Is this not good? Do I like it? Do I not? Do I want it? Do I not want it? So you see, it's, it's kind of challenging to be human because of this. Because we can't stop the flow We have to live awake. If you try to shut down, you create more suffering. So here's kind of where we are. The body is just a live vessel with all of these feelings, with all of these things happening, this sensitivity that we have to fine-tune, work with. One of the things I've discovered is that we don't really have so much control over what's pleasant or unpleasant, do we? (laughs) This is the thing that I think we try to control more than anything, right? Can I just get the the, the pleasant, please? Not this, right? Uh, Saida Utejaniya, a very 
popular Burmese teacher right now. He's working with many of the teachers on the council. He was at a retreat and he, he looked at the audience and he said, you Westerners, you want pleasant, 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 pleasant. Now is that fair? Right? <laughs> somehow we got it. We know it's not. Right? We know somehow life isn't really like that. But it's like, well, let's just try to gear it like that. Like, if I can live my day only having pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant smells, pleasant body sensations, right? Pleasant thoughts, then I've somehow lived the perfect day. Right? And if we don't, we feel like we failed. Oh, you know, we wake up, we stub our toe. It's like, why? Why did that happen? <laughs> we don't know why, right? But we have to be with the sensations of that. How many of you today had unpleasant body sensations? Just raise your hand. Right at some moment, right? That was like, I don't like this. I don't, I don't want this. Like, something's wrong, <laughs> right? And that's what's so bittersweet about having a body, you know, it's like, God, you know, I have to tend to it, right? And it hurts. We, we move constantly because we have to, because if we don't, we'll suffer. Our constant state of movement is actually alleviating many little pains and aches. We sit here too long, we have to stand. We stand too long, we need to sit, right? We stand and sit too long, we get hungry, right? We eat too much, we're like, oh no. We eat a little, we're still hungry, right? It's this, we're constantly this form, right? It's like... My goodness, it's a lot to balance it, right? And we can obsess, right? Or we can leave it alone. Either way, we suffer if you're in the I don't want to deal with it camp. You'll have to deal with it. You can't ignore it, (laughs) right? And we could try to tend to every little thing. We become a slave. So there's a middle path in there. I think that's the middle path the Buddha talked about in his own way, right? Of how do we live with kindness, in this form that is constantly meeting experience. It's constantly feeling, it's constantly knowing, it's constantly in contact with the earth, in contact with something, right? We, how do we learn how to respond with love? I think that's what we're doing here by these practices. We're learning how to respond to this form and this mind with a loving response, right? And we have to relearn this, actually, Right? This is a mystery, this form. One of the other things that I, I've noticed about the body that has been incredible is that the body is a storehouse of vast amounts of information. Vast amounts of information. I'm talking about information not from this century, not from our present time, but our ancestors a thousand generations back. It feels as if we have that information that lives in us, right? We have this capacity to listen to the body. When we know how to tune in and listen to the body, there's like a great teacher, this great tree of life that starts to unfold knowledge, right? This is what is so amazing about it. But also what's difficult about it is because it tracks everything, there's an enormous amount of trauma locked up inside. Has anybody noticed the life review happening here? Right? It starts suddenly we're in first grade and we have a memory of somebody, you know, 
sticking something on our head or you know whatever it starts every painful thing everything that wasn't in alignment something stood out it starts to track very organically when you're on a long retreat you really see this right it's like you go through first grade second grade third grade fourth grade fifth and you it's happening on its own here's what's beautiful about the body i didn't have to say body will you heal my cut there's something very powerful and organic that's moving us towards healing, moves us towards awakening, right? And Hakomi, it says cells move towards healing, move toward wholeness, right? There's something in our body that is, uh, when it starts to wake up, it knows what to let go of. It actually knows how to move trauma. It knows how to signal us that, hey, something's happening, have you ever noticed like your body knew something before you did? It alerted you to something, right? Like we need to pay attention. There's something happening in the belly here, right? Feel me, like this isn't good. Like an, a, a sort of a, an alarm starts to go off somewhere. And if we're just going, oh, this pain, shut it down instead of going, well, what body, what do you want me to know? Now I start asking my body questions. Before I used to go like, stop, trying to beat it into submission, right? A good day was when my body didn't give me any problems, right? And just kind of followed me around, right? I kind of like led it around, right? But now I'm like, okay, body, here we are together, right? You, me, here, oneness. Let's move and sync. Let's feel together. And there's been a huge opening because of that a different embodiment. So, um, our bodies can be a support for our metta practice because when we feel metta, start to feel it in your body. As you begin now to move into the deeper parts of the retreat, as you feel these emotions of happiness, joy, love, compassion, See if you can ground it so this doesn't become cognitive. This isn't just a, a thinking, like mental gymnastics we're teaching, right? Like, how many times can I go, may I be happy, may I be peaceful? You know, we're not doing that. We're actually trying to move the energy to feel into our bodies, right? Because what happens with the purification is that any place where we're stuck, where we're holding, comes out. Right, a lot of times we I've sat on the cushion of experience. I cannot tell you how many painful body sensations. Right, on a long retreat I had one time, it was like I was reliving whole episodes. My body was trying to to do like a ritual. I remember just being like, "Oh my goodness!" In my room on this very long retreat, my body was shaking and shedding, and it was going through this whole opening and sweating and tears would come and I remember just watching it was like oh you know what to do here let me just get out of the way right <laughs> like it was it was it was freeing itself right of energy it didn't need and as the love and the meta comes in it loves meta right because meta creates the home where all these pieces that are fragmented can come back and I feel like with humans, and I see this in myself, is that our trauma and our self-hatred has created a, a, a schism in all these places in us. 
like the mandala that's blown apart a little bit. And when the body feels loving, it calls these places back. Like, oh, that four-year-old, come back home. It's okay. Oh, that traumatized teenager, oh, come home. You're okay. And with this loving force, there's a, there's a shift that happens, a wholeness that starts to form. <clears throat> so we can tap into that more and more. Everything is stored, every incident, everything, our birth, everything is in there, you know, it's held in ourselves. Mm. Carolyn Miss, a teacher I like, she says, our biography becomes our biology, right? It's all in there. We get things passed down, a lot of this, not even ours, but we have to metabolize it. You know, if we come from 10 generations of alcoholics, there'll be some work that we have to do in this life. Right? It's just the way of it. Because of this interconnectedness, uh, our ancestors are alive in us. Right? How we learned about ourselves. If we have a lot of self-hatred, we could probably look at our family and point to it too. Like, oh yeah, I carry my grandfather right here. I carry my mother. It's a, it's a big part of it. So the purification comes as we sit and we feel metta, everything will arise out of the ethers, right? The whole body will go through processes. You know, some people talk about being sick. Often on retreat, people have panic attacks, right? Because the energy that we, we build up in the body, it processes, right? This fear starts to come. Um, a lot of people report having horrific dreams. I can remember going through periods where it wasn't just normal bad dreams. We're talking like guts being splattered. I mean, really like weirdly graphic, right? And again, this is like all the sort of the material in the mind, the war in the mind is going, right? It's kind of like a byproduct of the alchemy that we're doing. It's kind of bringing in love, letting go of hatred, ill will, right? It's kind of like all the ill will that built up during the day. It's like in one big scene, it goes in the night or something. You know, it's like, you know, it's just, it's interesting. If we can get interested in this healing process and instead of terrified, then we're on to something good, right? Because we get curious, like, well, what is this? Right, well, like, wow, what's happening here? Also, people report feeling huge blockages in their body. Does anyone notice this? Suddenly you'll be sitting and a little something will emerge out of the shoulder Mostly it's in the chest, people report right here. It's like, I'm encased in something spring. That's why people report this. It's like, help me, there's like a basketball, or there's a weight here. Or it could be actually feeling oppressed on the head, or the something's pushing me from right here. And we just sit with it, describe it. This is the way we work with ourselves now. This is the shift, even in psychotherapy, there's a whole shift towards somatics-based therapy, which is body-centered. The word somatic is like an adjective, means like body-based, right? So, so even talk therapy, although it has some benefits, people are thinking, no, let's work with the body now. My sister, uh, 
I just want to tell a story because she kind of introduced me to this. Uh, there's a woman, a healer woman down in San Jose. And my sister has a, a lot of different, very serious medical conditions. Um, and so she wanted to visit with this woman. So she said, well, you come with me. And I love looking, meeting healers and just seeing how people work and how, how they work with energy. And so these two women, they run this clinic. And what they did was my sister lied on a massage table. And they said, well, we're just going to talk to your body. And uh, so your body's going to channel through this other woman, and she's going to lift her arms. And it was just so fascinating. And they were, like, talking to my sister's body. My sister's very, like, animated. So I was like, this was going, and that was going. And my body just told this. And this. But actually, all the information at the end of the hour and a half was dead on. You know, and uh, I just thought, I don't know if I would go to that type of therapy regularly because it was unusual, but I appreciated the, the, the lens of let's ask the body what it needs now. Let's ask that. How do you need to heal? So you see, we elevate the role of the body out of just being an object of desire or do I look big today? Do I look small today? Do I look, does everyone think I look great? Or, you know, this extreme self-consciousness into this incredible vehicle for liberation, right? It's like, we have no idea. Like, we just relate in one way, right? And it's almost like this whole storehouse of knowledge that we're, we're cut off from because we either love it because it looks like this or it doesn't look like that. You know, regardless of whatever we do, it's impermanent, this form. It will get old, right? It will die. No matter how much wheatgrass you drink, you, this, this will be the case for all of us. You know, even looking in the mirror now, I, oh, it's happening. <laughs> right? It was almost like everybody else's happens to them. I'm like, no, it's me too, right? I gotta do yoga, but then I'm like, yoga's not gonna save you. <laughs> It'll help you, <laughs> except the truth, right? So I go, okay. And we keep on moving forward, right? It's all we can do. So it's important that we learn to view ourselves from this, this form as holy in some way, as a teacher to us, not as something that's torturing us. And even if you are in pain, okay, even if you're, you're dealing with something and you're like, this is debilitating, I know how it feels to be in physical suffering. But if we can begin to open with metta, right, to send metta into the body and begin to ask the body, what do you want me to know from this? Everything is temporary. Things arise, they stay for a while and they pass. Even illness, even intense physical suffering. Like how can we learn? What do we need to learn? Things arise because there are teachers. This is a compassionate universe. Even if it doesn't look like that. Even if what we're feeling, we think, duh, you've betrayed me, body. Right? You're now hurting me. But we can reframe it to what do you need me to do how do you need me to move with you? How do you need me to work with you with love? And we keep doing the meta until we find that traction. Right? What do you need? What do you want? This is kind of how I work with my body now. What do you need? 
What's the most compassionate thing I can do? Right? You're trying to tell me something. And a lot of times it might be just slow down. Right? Sometimes the body wants to look at the flowers or feel something, feel the earth with no shoes on. Right? But we're so busy, right? Or wants to dance. Right? But it's like, oh, more work. Right? So how do we slow down and, and find our rhythm? You know, going at the speed of life. <laughs> walking with the turkeys. You see how peaceful you can feel just walking by a turkey and a deer? It's like going at their rhythm slow. Body feels happy. It feels peace. So let's start to see this magnificence and this incredible intelligence. As you sit here, become a receiver of information. As you express metta, let, let this process of listening, deep listening as you just sit on the earth like a Buddha, like listening, well, what, what is being known? How can I be mindful? And then I think I'll just end with a couple of, I wanted to just give you a couple of little facts I found about the body just so we can be a little bit more in wonder. <laughs> Right. So you know 70% of the body is seawater. It's the same consistency as seawater. And it said, I was reading, it said, every day an adult body produces 300 billion new cells. 300 is busy in there, right? 300 billion. The human body is estimated to have 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Right? So all this energy, all these things are happening. It's magical in some way. Scientists have counted over 500 different liver functions. It's one of the hardest working organs. And it's the biggest job is the detoxer. So like, can you send some love there? <laughs> right? It's like, wow, our whole, this whole thing is working for us. When we hug someone, this is the last one because I think this is very sweet, when we hug someone, oxytocin is released into our bodies by our pituitary gland, lowering both our heart rates and our cortisol levels. Right? So if you hug someone, again, it's an expression of metta. Right? In just that moment, you move toward kindness. The body loves that. You create a safety with metta. What we're doing here is we're creating a new home. So I encourage you, if you have um, moments throughout the retreat, to try to find your way home to your body, to make peace with your body if you've abandoned it or you've attacked it. This is not easy work to do. You know, it's not easy. But like, can we, can we embrace it for what it really is? The highest vehicle for our awakening, our body and our mind uh, working together. So, thank you. Let's just sit for just a moment together.
just sending some kindness into this body that's probably worked hard today, sitting, walking. Just taking a moment to appreciate however it is, whatever it's saying. May this body be healthy and strong. May all of our bodies be fiestas, 